0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jen Sung, Andy Holmes, and David Ng. It has been something like 30 years since Audrey Lorde observed, There is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. And even then, it resonated because it captured something that a lot of people, particularly women of color, had been experiencing for a long, long time. Yet still today, most communities and movements and organizations and groups manage to act from critical consciousness around one way that power shapes and plays out in people's lives, but not the full spectrum. This means that far too often, people who experience marginalization along more than one axis have their marginalization reinforced even in spaces that are supposedly for or about them, and far too few of us do the work to build meaningful solidarity within our communities, our movements, and our groups that extends across those complex differences in how we experience benefit and harm from the ways our social world is currently organized. In 2014, the Vancouver School Board updated its anti-discrimination policies, in particular in ways responding to the needs of transgender students and lesbian, gay, bi, and queer students. There was vocal opposition to these changes, as well as community mobilization in support of them. Much of the support came, not surprisingly, from LGBTQ students and parents and the broader LGBTQ community in the city, but it happened in a way that tended to center white queer voices. And the opposition, though it certainly extended beyond, often had at its core Chinese-Canadian Christian women, generally mothers of students, Jen Sung, Andy Holmes, and David Ng were all involved in supporting the updates to the anti-discrimination policy. However, as queer people of color, they also saw close up a great deal of anti-Chinese racism happening in the context of the broader support for the policy update, including in queer contexts that they're a regular part of. They also saw a generalized failure to recognize that For all the differences between the two sides in that debate, both were acting out of what they saw as love and care for children and youth, and they believed that that point of similarity held and holds the potential to build understanding, bridges, and solidarity. The name of their project is Love Intersections, and it originally came into being when Jen and David created a website and wrote pieces which circulated broadly in British Columbia and around the world, calling out the racism they were seeing in the Vancouver queer community. And now that the catalyzing issue has receded, the policy passed, though it is being challenged in court, they have taken on a broader vision for Love Intersections as a community-based and online project using storytelling as a way to explore intersectionality, that is, all those messy complexities of power and experience and identity, and build solidarity through the lens and language of love. They talked with me about their experiences of the policy process, about intersectionality, about the Love Intersections project, and about their vision for social change. We spoke by Skype from Vancouver.
1: My name is Jen Sung, and one of the co-founders of Love Intersections. I was born in Taipei, Taiwan, and growing up queer, navigating not just living in a world of systemic inequality as a woman, but also as a woman of color, also as, you know, second generation immigrant, not speaking English when I arrived, as well as questioning my sexuality from an early age.
2: My name is Andy Holmes. I am a first year university student at UBC, and I'm also part of this project. I actually first met Jen and out in schools, and she was working, delivering programs to high schools, and a disclosure, I identify as a queer individual, I am gay. And I remember I was sitting in this theater, and I was just watching, and and I remember the revelation of knowing that there are people that support you. So that's how I had this connection.
3: My name is David Ng. I am also one of the co-founders of Love Intersections. Love Intersections How it started was early in 2014, the Vancouver School Board was updating their LGBT discrimination laws, expanding them to include gender discrimination, also to include transgender rights. There was a huge backlash against it, mainly from Chinese Christians. Jen and Andy were part of the Vancouver School Board consultation process, and so were a lot of our queer allies. I actually did speak at the Vancouver School Board.
2: I was actually speaking at the beginning, and I definitely felt that polarization between the queer community, it seemed, and the other community, the opposition, the predominantly Asian Christian moms. And as much as they seem as an opposition, I actually felt a lot of sympathy for them. Because if we're thinking of oppression and we're thinking that the queer community is oppressed in that sense, I'd like to also try to put myself in the position of a vulnerable group of people. And if they, as Asian women primarily, who feel that marginality, that they also need a space. And I think that rather than working against those two forces, that we can hopefully bridge something. And that's what Lever Intersections is standing for.
3: In terms of the controversy, when the school board with the encouragement and support of their queer allies, we rewriting the policy. Some of the things that were really controversial were particularly around the transgender rights stuff. One of the things that gets, pardon this metaphor, but got beaten over and over and over in the media and by the opposition was this idea of gender neutral bathrooms And this fear that, you know, men masquerading as women or women masquerading as men would, you know, have this perverse motivation to hurt children. This argument was used really heavily from the opposition. And there were other things around confidentiality.
2: The confidentiality, I believe the policy was trying to say that if a student were to come out to the Vancouver School Board staff and this child did not feel safe in their home, For reasons of feeling loss of safety, if their parents were to react negatively to their gender, so if they're transgender and say you're uh, transitioning from male to female or female to male, or if you identify as gender non-conforming, that the school board would have to take responsibility and keep that student's confidentiality for the safety of the child. And quite a bit of parents in opposition were saying that this was taking away their freedom to know their kids and that they felt that the Vancouver School Board was actually kind of taking over the rights of parenting. And in fact, this has actually turned into a legal case, I believe, that some parents are actually suing the Vancouver School Board.
3: Jen and I noticed that there was also another racist backlash against Asian people from within the queer community. And we were very angered by that (laughs) and didn't know what to do. And so we decided to write about it. And that's essentially how Love Intersection started. We started with two posts about the racism and our experiences of race within the queer community in the context of the Vancouver School Board policy update controversy. And the response was tremendous. We got a lot of media attention. We got a lot of positive feedback from the queer community, from our peers and from a lot of people actually across the world. And so we wanted to continue to, A, talk about race and queerness, but also in a lens of looking at solidarity building and how we might do solidarity more.
1: When we were writing about love intersections, we were tapping into a very hungry and thirsty audience where people wanted to read more about these texturized and three-dimensional, more dimensional experiences that impact our lives. I've only ever worked in social profit and my schooling very much is rooted in feminist, women and gender studies background as well as a minor in critical studies and sexuality. So I've only ever known in my life in terms of my public engagements in the social justice community and One of the things that we've noticed is how challenging it can be and how distressful it can be to swim against some of the heaviness of the work that we do as people who believe in these systemic oppressions or inequalities and fighting against that. Because it's a lot of work. It's hard work when you're constantly fighting against this kind of invisible force that you are navigating uphill in so many ways. And love really is the foundation to my and our experiences as we try to swim against some of the currents of social inequality, because love is something that is ultimately the, the common denominator for so many of us with different backgrounds and beliefs and spirituality and religion and gender and race and All of these things that are supposed to separate us upon our differences, but rather love is something that, you know, brings us together in empathy and compassion.
3: One of the things that we noticed during the controversy was even though it was conservative Christians' parents pitted, if you will, against queer affirming parents, One of the things that we noticed that was being ignored heavily by all sides and in the media was how much similarities and moments of solidarity these opposing sides actually had. So, for example, all the parents, the reason why they were fighting for and against the policy was because they loved their children and also because they wanted their children to be safe. And so we thought, why aren't we talking about that? Why are we talking so much about the anger and the opposition? When there's those really key moments of solidarity and I guess love intersections, we want to capture those moments. We should be capturing those moments of solidarity because it's in those moments that transformation happens. I should also add that around this time and related to what we were posting, we had a conversation with Theatre for Living and Theatre for Living actually hosted a dialogue between the opposing sides using one of their theatrical techniques, again, premise on this idea of capturing moments of solidarity. So it was a really nice opportunity to actually do some work in writing in, you know, with Virgin and Andy actually going to participate in the process and also on another level doing this theatrical art work as well.
0: What kind of responses did you get to the writing you did specifically on love intersections around this debate, this polarization? online responses, but also conversations that it got you into in other contexts?
3: Well, of course, from our queer friends, we got really positive responses. A lot of people were like, you know, yeah, this is something that I've noticed. I mean, I'll be honest with you, there was a lot of really direct racism, like people just talking really nasty things about Chinese people right in front of my eyes. These are like allies of mine. And so for them to read this writing, which I don't think anyone was really talking about at the time, or verbalizing in a published form, that was, uh, so we did get some positive responses. I didn't dare to read all the comments, but it was also reposted on the Georgia Strait.
0: Uh, and just for the benefit of listeners from other parts of the country, the Georgia Strait is the alternative and entertainment weekly that publishes in Vancouver.
3: And I was very critical at the beginning of my article about race. I did talk about white privilege, and that was very controversial. (laughs) As I said, I didn't read all the comments, but I did skim through a few. And that's one of the biggest things that I'm really, really, really passionate about, about love intersections, is it's just really hard to talk about race, especially, I think, maybe I'm just biased because I'm in the queer community, but especially in the queer community, people don't like to talk about race.
1: I think in general, people don't like to talk about race because it's such a visceral thing, right? Whereas queerness, if we're going to get theoretical or philosophical here, queerness is not always visible. Yes, some of us are flaming queers, honey, all of us are, um, <laughs> but race is one of those visible signifiers and you can definitely get into the other dimensions of race where you know, some folks are mixed race or occupying different places on the race spectrum, if you will, that are not as visible. But overall, I think that something as visible as the color of your skin, to be able to talk about white privilege in a way that isn't about pointing the finger, but it's about Making social awareness known that relates to, yeah, each and every one of us experiences privileges and social mobility based on who we are, what we look like, and the kinds of beliefs and the words that we espouse, right? We've been talking about love, but really we're talking about intersections, right? Intersectionality. That term, that theoretical term, is about 20, 25 years old. It really grew out of the womanist or the black feminist communities in the 80s and early 90s. Now, it's been taken up by various kinds of social justice communities, women's communities, queer communities, as a way to explain the minute dimensions that it's very complex. We can only be as worldly as we can in the context that we are in the places that we live on. So as a second generation immigrant, I fully acknowledge that I benefit from colonization. Specifically in the Pacific West Coast, where indigenous rights, while it is known, it's certainly not um, talked about in history books, right? I don't grow up taking social studies in high school and learning about colonization and the impacts of the legacy of residential schooling. So I know that for me, I'd read the benefits of colonization and European settlement, so we, we wanted to really bring Andy in, because as a young person who is of mixed race, and I'll let Andy speak to that maybe a little bit more. Okay.
2: I have to admit that I am quite a bit younger. <laughs> I am just in my first year of university. And, and yes, we are covering the concept of intersectionality a lot. And what I've noticed is that in a lot of activism historically, it has only focused on one group of people. So if we're to look at, say, like the women's rights movement or racial rights movements Or even just, if we're to dissect what queer rights is, originally it only started out as gay rights, and then slowly it turned into gay and lesbian rights, and then we add on transgender rights.
0: And the movement historian in me can't help but jump in here and add a little bit of nuance there. There was actually a moment at the beginning of overt queer organizing immediately after the Stonewall Riots where the politics were a very broad revolutionary politics that encompassed many different issues, many different struggles. That decomposed fairly quickly, and then the progression that Andy's talking about with gay rights, then gay and lesbian rights, and so on.
2: And we can see that gradually we're, we're trying to incorporate how there's this connectivity between people, and I think that's what intersectionality is about. It's not that we live the lives that are separate from other people's lives as well, to quote Audre Lorde, There's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issued lives. And I do recognize that intersectionality does come at the possible implication of saying, oh, we're all the same. But I don't really think that that's a fair argument because we're just trying to acknowledge that when we have individuals and I think that. Dave and Jen and I all can speak on behalf of that. And when we have racial or a gendered uh, aspect of our lives, on top of that, with the queer identity, that we can be discriminated technically for each of those issues. How can we possibly hierarchize our identity when we live this three dimensions or whatever, five dimensions it may be, that are all kind of inextricable from each other? Mm-hmm.
1: For me, visual storytelling is a very easy way to get language across. When we reduce our experiences to language, sometimes so much of that can get lost in translation, right? I think this was a few months ago when I was trying to make intersectionality as kind of a theory or philosophy accessible for younger folks to understand, to wrap their heads around. And so I was just doing some Google research and literally I typed in dictionary.com and I happened upon this urban planners definition of an intersection. It's very visual, and I found it very effective in getting that concept across. Her definition of it, from an urban planner's point of view, is where two or more points intersect, and that's when the most accidents happen. So if you think about traffic, if an intersection is where the most accidents happen, then we can kind of apply that concept to how we interact with people on a day-to-day basis or with systems and schools and institutions on a day-to-day basis. And if that's where the most tension and the accidents happen, we want to spin that and make that into a beautiful thing. It's not a bad or negative thing. It's about freezing that moment where we can learn, right? There's so much that David and Andy and myself can learn from. it, And by extension, our communities that we're a part of can learn from. And then you expand that further out into the world.
3: One of the really core things I think about Love Intersections is it's about storytelling. It's not about over-intellectualizing theory, although, of course, you know, theory is lived And so that's at the core of the concept of Love Intersections as well, which is also the same as the concept behind our video series that we're launching to, again, capture personal stories of intersectionality, of love, and those moments of solidarity and transformation making at the small points of our lives and in the bigger parts as well.
0: Tell me in a little bit more detail about your vision for the site, for the project, now that the specific issue that you initially started around has receded a little bit.
2: If we're looking at the analogy of traffic intersections, I think first we need to build some stop signs and just acknowledge (laughs) that, look at these different intersections and just dissect those and then work from there. I like to think that we're trying to build bridges and communities that we're trying to not further the gaps, but to kind of like blend the gaps together to hybridize our identities, but still paradoxically holding on to what is our core and what is strong to us. When we're talking about personal stories, I think those really do speak for themselves. And I think that there's something very powerful about storytelling in whatever medium that may be, in whatever art form that is. Like David was saying, you don't have to have theory to understand that, that it just speaks for itself, that there's something almost therapeutic about listening to someone else talk about their lives. And if you're lucky, you live vicariously through them and draw from your own experiences that might relate to someone
3: else's. One of the things that I noticed in my own life, and I would like to say that I've been an activist since I was 14, and I spent a lot of that as an angry feminist, (laughs) if you will. And I noticed that if you really look at how behavior change happens, how social change happens, by getting into an argument with someone and proving them wrong, never changes someone. It's capturing those moments of solidarity that does. I'll give you an example, and I wrote about this on Love Intersections. I was at a Chinese restaurant with my partner who's white. I'm Chinese. And when we sat down, the waitress gave him a fork and he was really, really offended by it. And we got into this thing at this restaurant where, of course, as the <laughs> anti-racist feminist, I was like, you know, how dare you? I navigate this world as a person of color, you know, blah, blah, blah. That I have to do with whiteness as the norm on a daily basis. And you have this one moment that you're not in the norm and you're freaking out. How dare you? And I went home that night and I just thought to myself, Not to say that I was wrong, but why did I do that? If I'm trying to disrupt that moment of white normativity or racial normativity in the world, that was not the moment to do it. And I actually took the time to sit him down and apologize because that wasn't the right time to do it. I don't think that that was the right thing to do, even though in the critical lens, it might have been. That's not how that change that I wanted to see would happen. And so by sharing that story and sharing these stories, I think we hope that that type of analysis or that type of illuminating of our lives can be talked about and how that relates to the bigger activism things, you know. Just that small moment in the restaurant that really related to huge anti-racist, white supremacist discourses. But it really comes down to those minute moments in our lives. And I believe, anyways, that those are the moments that change happens.
1: So to answer your question, our vision is really to visually tell some of these stories that David and Andy and myself have experienced personally, as well as pointing a lens, a camera lens, if you will, to those that are navigating all of these different tensions and complexities in the city of Vancouver and point that camera lens to capture how different people live their different lives yet so interconnected in so many ways as they live their lives in the city. So that's our vision, to really bring those stories together in a visual and very compelling way.
0: I think it was articulated in one of the posts on your site in this way or in something similar to this way that one way of thinking about this shift in approach was from a focus on critique to more of a focus on dialogue, or at least some of the time more of a focus on dialogue. And we've talked a lot about that, I think, in the interview so far. But I was wondering if you see any limits or any weaknesses in that turn from critique to more of an emphasis on dialogue.
3: I think that I've been careful about denying or pushing away critique and calling out, you know, the importance of that. I think there is a place for that. Even in my original post, it was, you know, part of love is also... You know, there is hard love, too. (laughs) And so, yeah, we've incorporated that. So while we do recognize that in many circumstances, there is an importance to call out oppression, call out discrimination, etc. But I love the way that Jen had framed it. Instead of calling out, why don't we actually call people in? It is the same idea to engage with the oppressive system or oppressive thing that had happened, but the idea of calling in is much more embracing, compassionate, and community-building.
1: I certainly can't take credit for the concept of calling in, but definitely it really spoke to me as a way of thinking. I would love for our communities to be a little bit more gentle with each other, because what we're doing is really hard, heavy work.
0: If things go well with Love Intersections over the next year, say, what do you hope you will have accomplished over that year, and what impact do you hope that the project will have had?
2: I really like the idea of just raising more awareness of dialogue, and getting the conversation started about intersectionality, and what we're talking about Bringing in the concepts of race and gender and religion and sexuality and class and whatever it may be, and really using that as a framework in our activism and and this as a concept, this is what Love Intersections is standing for, I think can raise to higher levels. This can get into how we, as vague as this is, govern ourselves
3: in our interactions with other people. For me, two of the big things is the storytelling aspects. Sharing stories from people from the margins or sharing stories that aren't being shared, that people can relate to and apply really tangibly to their lives. I think another really big one for me, too, is around this idea of mentorship. I mentioned that I started my activism when I was 14, and I was really fortunate because I had my feminist godmothers (laughs) around me that really mentored me as a queer person. And I was really fortunate to have that, especially as a queer person growing up in a really conservative environment as well. And so I hope that this project and this model that we've put together really organically, that we can have that knowledge transfer and continue that. I also like to just mention that on a more
2: individual level, I think we hope to inspire people who do live intersectional
1: lives. Really, this video series, the web quips that we're launching really is about providing visible representation for those who do not get to see themselves reflected in mainstream media, in the movies, in the characters, in, you know, all these series that we're bombarded in. We don't necessarily get to see ourselves represented in a way that or at all. Yes, in so many ways, what we're doing is selfish and comes from a place of, well, if we don't see something, well, let's make something. But at the same time, we know that based on the past year's experiences and feedback from people that are around us outside of our closed communities, that there is a thirst out there for a more complex and and kind of diverse experiences that are new. We're providing, hopefully, a platform for that visual representation through visual storytelling.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Jen Sung, Andy Holmes, and David Ng. They're the activists behind the Love Intersections Project, which you can learn more about at loveintersections.com. That's loveintersections.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists Gender and Sexuality and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.